This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. I'm Uma Paganapke Pagan, and this is Bookmark. Last Saturday, we held a special edition of Bookmark Live in collaboration with our friends over at Airbnb, where Kamraslan, Sharmila Ganesan, and myself took readers on a journey around the world through the pages of eight and a half books or so. The event took place in conjunction with the Once Upon a Sleepover contest hosted by Airbnb, where a mother-daughter duo got the chance to spend a night at Book Access's 24-hour store in Tamarind Square. Now, this was an absolutely fantastic effort and one that had all three of us, Cam, Sharmila and myself, just green with envy. I mean, who wouldn't want to spend a night in a bookstore? Anyway, I digress. As I was saying earlier, we did a live taping of the show where we spoke about travel reading and travel writing. Go on and have a listen. Good evening, folks, and uh, we are here to do a special edition of our Bookmark Live in collaboration, obviously, with Airbnb and Book Access. Allow me to introduce you to my two honored guests before we get on with the show. I have, of course, on my far left, Cam Razlan. He is an author. You may recognize him from BFM 89.9's A Bit of Culture, where he is the host. To my immediate left is Sharmila Ganesan. She is the host of Front Row on The Bigger Picture at BFM 89.9. That is the show that does arts and theater and music. She is also a literary columnist for the Star newspaper, and she was once resident at the Star, but we stole her over to BFM, and so now she's ours. We were really, really thrilled when the folks at Airbnb got in touch with us, saying that they wanted to do this, because this is something um, that all three of us enjoy in different ways. I'm, I'm talking about reading and writing about travel, and that's the approach we're going to take today. I mean, it's called Portable Worlds Around the World in Eight and a Half Books. The half is because one of my recommendations is a website, but it's a really good website. Don't roll your eyes. And, and we each have book recommendations, but we're coming at it in different ways. I'm going to be talking primarily about travel through fiction. Sham's going to be talking about travel, which is what we consider more traditional travel writing, the Bill Brysons and such. And Cam, well, Cam's going to do Cam. <laughs> Cam's going to be talking about um, traveling through time and history, which is what we kind of tap these pieces of literature for. And, and most of you here are readers, right? That's why you're at a 24-hour bookshop. And I suppose reading anything is an escape. The reason this, this session is called Portable Worlds is because within the pages of every single book is a world or multiple worlds, right? And they can fit in your pocket. And they're probably the earliest forms of escape that we are subjected to from our homes, from our school rooms. It's books and television. And I think those are the two mediums that really inspire us and also kind of transform our lives as children growing up. It, it allows us to break away from the monotony of our day-to-day. And so what we're going to do and how we're going to kick things off, of course, is I'm going to ask both Sham and Cam about what kind of travel writing they enjoy most. I mean, is it something they enjoy reading? Does it make them feel depressed when they read about all these places that they may not be able to go to? Uh, what is that like? Um. I think my favorite travel writer is uh, the Polish journalist Richard Kapuscinski. So what I what I what I enjoyed about his work was 
He would take me to places I have not been and I probably won't go. But even then, he was going. He was telling me about that place from a, a very different mindset from my Anglo-American capitalist perspective. He's talking from an Eastern European communist. Well, I mean, he was not really a communist himself. So for me, travel when it's when it's a reframing, it's a discovery and a reframing at the same time is very exciting. My first real introduction to travel writing was with Bill Bryson, primarily notes from a small island, which about, which was about England and Down Under. And Down Under still for me is a favorite. And the reason I liked Bill Bryson so much at that time um, was how he managed to sort of really get into a place that seemed so familiar, especially places like England and Australia. And then he also wrote about the US. So he wasn't really the kind of writer that did the exotic travels. But he f- seemed to find the unusual and the uncanny and the downright weird in, in these places that to most of us actually sound quite familiar. And I guess even at that time, it was kind of refreshing to read a white male writer who was writing about his own countries in the same sort of flippant... Um, slightly top-down way that white people had been writing about the rest of the world, Asia, Africa, and so on. Um, And it kind of made me feel like I wanted to travel with this guy, you know? Bryson also is very well-researched. So it's not just him sitting in a coffee shop, a cafe, and like how he feels, and he's looking at the sites. No, he's really researched it, and he's, he's really explained the history and the meanings behind simple things. No, oh, yeah, and he, you know, he's written many books that aren't travel themed, and clearly he's someone who thrives on really researching what he's writing about. And that tone, the tone of so deceptively casual that you don't see the amount of work that goes into getting that much information about a place and weaving it in. Um, so that was my introduction, and then we can get. I, I'm just going to preempt what I'm going to talk about and say I kind of heavily fell out of love with travel writing as I approached my mid twenties and. We can talk more later about why. I enjoyed the travel narrative as a way to get some insight into a world or a place that you're not necessarily used to going to, somewhere different. The other day, someone was making a list on Facebook as to the most influential books in their lives. And uh, uh, the individual made a list. And then after that, they were thinking about it. um, And she was Malaysian. And she said, "I I noticed that all of these books and writers that I've picked were all white, American, British, European, right? And, and she had a real conflict with that. And, I was re- and she was like, you know, why aren't there more Indian writers or Chinese writers or Malaysian writers on that list? And I, I started thinking about, well, I, I put down my own list and I realized that all of my cultural checkpoints, literary checkpoints were the same. And then it occurred to me, actually, the reason was probably quite basic because all of the people I wanted to read had to be different. Reading an Indian writer for me, which my parents used to force me to read, was more of the same. I'd lived it. So I knew it, right? I'd been to India many times, or, or the, even the Indian Malaysian or the, the Southeast Asian Indian experience was something I thought I understood. And so for me, it wasn't exotic. But reading about the famous five, having scones and tea somewhere and picnic and going off on adventure, to Adventure Island or whatever was traveling for me it was exotic it was different well, I think that's a great point because I know that we tend to think of traveling um, through books as a non-fiction genre but I think for a lot of us growing up in Malaysia for instance 
Enid Blyton, um, and then later on, Roald you know, Roald Dahl, Sweet Valley High, you know, were insights into worlds that we didn't have very much access to. And whether they were accurate or not, they were certainly a mode of traveling that you may not have necessarily gotten yeah, that idea of wanting to again read. Like, I know what school in Malaysia is like, you right. know, I want to know what school in LA is like. Uh, we, 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 though, we operate in the English language. Um, and so over time, you, you grow a cultural facility. But I wonder if, let's say, China right now, where the uh, explosion in Chinese tourism and they're moving up the value chain. Yeah. I would imagine in uh, Mandarin now, you would be having, um, a, I don't know, I've been mean, a vast catalog, uh, library now of travel books. Um, and from their perspective, and it would be fascinating to see what they say. <laughs> so I am severely limited by the fact that I don't speak Mandarin. Uh, I do know, though, and I remember reading that travel guidebooks have exploded in China especially translating travel guidebooks that already exist, you know, The Lonely Planets and The Rough Guides of the World. I'm not sure about the fiction. I'm not sure whether, uh, sorry, not fiction, uh, travel writing, narrative, narrative travel writing, um, whether it's making nearly as much of an impact, I honestly don't know. Actually, uh, speaking of travel books, uh, we're jumping around a bit, but uh, a friend of mine, he did a, a cross-comparison uh, of travel books in different markets uh, the kinds of things that different um, people look for. Right. So the Japanese ones, for instance, will always stress the cleanliness of the hotel. Um, it, that, that's the first rating, is, is cleanliness or not. Uh, the German ones also, to, to a degree. Whereas when you ta start talking to the British or the American ones, they don't really care about that. Um, and so everybody has their own different uh, value systems. So I need to buy Japanese travel books to find out where the clean toilets are. Yes. Yes. All right. That's good to know. Possibly I love, not in KL. I was just going to say, I'm terrified to look at a Japanese travel book of KL <laughs> and like toilet cleanliness. I kind of feel like I want that one now. Yeah. <laughs> they would just be like, you have to pay two ringgit at KLCC. And then they give you like one of those scented tissues as well for your two ringgit. But anyway, for me, I guess my first exposure was through people like Peter Mayo. And Peter Mayo wrote a, a series of books of his time in Provence. He was a British, the most typical British writer you could find. And he and his wife had a holiday in France and then decided, oh my God, I love this life so much. I want to uproot and just move to Provence. Um, and they did. And then he wrote his first, I guess, travel book or travel experience there called A Year in Provence. And it's one of these magnificent books. I mean, he writes so simply. He writes so observationally, right? And, it, and, and, and all it does is it just makes you want to go to these places. And what's more, you were talking about Bryson writing about his own people in this fish-out-of-water sense. Mail did the same. He would make fun of English people because in the past, whenever English people went to Europe, they would literally pack their car trunk full of tea, and drive into France because they didn't want to experience French food or French cooking. Or, or live without tea. Or live without tea, right? So they would take everything with them, marmalade, tea, whatever, because they used to be... This sounds like my first family trip to Australia. Hey, <laughs> there is nothing... And they packed curry powder into our suitcase. There is nothing wrong with traveling with lingam's chili sauce. You've got to transfer it to a little bottle. <laughs> if not, it gets confiscated at customs. But so even on the plane, you can be like, oh, there we go. Uh, actually, I was growing up in Britain when uh, Year in Provence came out. 
and it was a cultural phenomenon uh, because yeah for, because it's so near how old are you again uh, sorry <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah quite old it was in the early 80s and because um, france is so near but 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 for the british people it's so far away or foreign yeah foreign and but you know rest assured though post brexit uh well, they won't be allowed to go back there, so that's that. <laughs> or they may have to go there to get cheap cheese. For, or food, or basically. Food. And Just then food. they'll know what it's like. Exactly, and then they'll know what it's like. The other thing I wanted to ask you guys about was, uh, in general, with regards to travel fiction and travel writing, do you find, it sounds like a ridiculous question, but people have been doing it for so long. Do you believe it's harder now to be unique and seek out these interesting, fun, new experiences and then tell people about it and still have them be surprised? I think that's an interesting question and um, it kind of ties into what I said earlier about why, even though um, I still like Bryson so much, um, but the Paul Thoreau's and um, even say like a Nepal um, who wrote a fair amount of travel writing. I started feeling like travel literature, when I grew up to become the age where I started traveling by myself, I couldn't relate to these books because they were all written by men. And men travel in a particular way. Uh, there are certain things and certain experiences that are allowed to them that simply can't for women. And it's not because I'm saying women shouldn't travel. Uh, the realities of it is it's different. Um, and when and I, at some point I started thinking, where are all the female travel writers, right? Um, and the reason that I think that relates to what you're talking about is I think there's definitely those stories. So because then where all the female writers led me to thinking about, there are some female writers, female travel writers, but they're all white, right? So there's the Elizabeth Gilberts of the world who, um, you know, comes to Asia and then eats and prays and loves and then goes home, right? But where where our own stories, where are the travel writers from Asia, female travel writers, the ones that I can identify with, right? So I think they're absolutely stories that can be told because let's face it, like it's not like we hadn't read things about a lot of these cities. About London, yeah. about Sydney. It's about... not really about discovering a new place. In fact, I think the idea of discovering a place is a colonial hangover. Look what? at me. Yeah. Here's my flag. Right. Yeah. And, and look at all these happy natives and hurrah, you know. No. Um, what we're actually looking for is a particular view of that place, a particular experience, a particular individual, um, you know, what it means for me to be in this place. So what changed because Victorian women traveled and wrote a lot? Well, yeah, uh, in, in Malaya, there's Isabella Bird. Uh, she very famously <laughs> cut a swathe through uh, Malaya. Everyone hated her. Um, yeah, well, I, I would say that... that that these words exist, and it's all on the internet now. Um, I think that people are writing blogs, and they're very, they're very specific. I mean, they, I, I know, I haven't looked it up, but I'm absolutely certain that there are whole blog sites about how to travel, where to travel as a woman. No, and I think that actually the internet has kind of become this, this democratization of travel writing, because now you can go on the internet and you can look for a specific kind of travel writing, right? I like to travel and learn about food. I like to travel and, you know, travel in fashion, travel in shoes, traveling with pets. Mm. Um, but but the, the, it's, it's certainty you're not the first person who's done it, though, now. So when uh, V.S. Naipaul went to Britain for the first time, 
He was doing that in what the 1950s or something. Yeah, he was one of the very few West Indian Indians <laughs> who had travelled there, and he was going through a, a lot of post-colonial angst. Angst. And and but but since he's made that journey, tens of thousands of people have made that journey. And tens of thousands of Indians have made that journey as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. So it's no longer unique. I mean, for me, I mean, I'm, I'm Malaysian. I mean, I grew up overseas, but I'm Malaysian. For me, if I was going to do travel writing, if I was to go to Perlis, that would be terrifying for me. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Um, I've no, I Might ju- be I would, terrifying for them too. Well, maybe. I, I, was ta- I was talking to my cousin the other day. It's like, he was talking about Perlis. It's like, I've never been there. Um, you know, travel, in a way, it's because of air travel, it's, it's cheaper now. We can actually travel to these places. Yeah. You know, a year in Provence was written at a time when without, without cheap air travel, it actually costs a lot of money for a British person just to go to France. Um, and now, though, I think the travels actually nearer destinations are actually further away. I mean, what do we know about Pudu or Imbi? These are places which are damn close. And they're places with a tremendous amount of history behind Absolutely. them. And what do we know about them, right? That is a very good question. How many people here have done all 14 states? Oh, Congratulations. Well done. Congratulations. Got two people. Two people. Three. Three. Three out of about 40. I can't, I can't, I can't put up my hand. I've not done all 14 I've not states. even done Semenanjong. Yeah, uh, actually, yeah. I haven't done all of Semenanjong. Yeah. yeah. Love one. Have you been to Love one? Oh, damn it. Fantastic. That's great. <laughs> oh, you're not, you're not, three, you're not, three you're times not love clumping one. all the federal territories into one line. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so the thing is, right, um, so it strikes me that this question actually leads to this idea that we think of travel writing as being a very specific thing, yes. right? That um, whether it's the Bill Bryson style or the Paul Thoreau style, but there have been, um, for instance, what Cam said in, in terms of Provence at that time being fairly inaccessible. The thing is, there are actually writers who write travel writing that it might be a place you've read about many times, um, but they write about it in a particular way, and that's what makes it different, right? Yeah, it would be. I mean, yes, I mean, if if you were, for instance, moving to Provence in order to open up a dominatrix uh, <laughs> parlor, yeah. you know, that would be something something new, unique, something unique. But like the other day, I, actually, I was watching. I saw this uh, back young backpacker, uh, white fella, and he was sitting in the usual thing, and he's sitting in a coffee shop, and he's got his notepad out, and he's about to write that thing, and I'm thinking. What the hell have you got left to write? What, <laughs> what are you going to say? I mean, I've been in the same situation. I sat there. It looks so romantic and fantastic. It's like chapter one. Uh, <laughs> nothing. Yeah, it's like I have nothing, nothing more to Every, add. Where, where did you see it's this all, backpacker? In KL? Yeah, yeah just the yeah, other day. I mean, like, you know, everything's been, has been described to death. Yeah, right? everything's like, been done. See, but I, I don't think I'm interested in hearing another white man talk about what Kopio. it's like to come to... Yeah, Kopio <laughs> and Roti Chanai, right? But I might be very interested, even if it is Provence or Paris, to hear about what someone else um, who hasn't written about that experience, someone from Africa who's traveling to France for the first time, someone from Malaysia who cycles through Europe. Like, these are stories that I would be interested yeah, to as, hear. As long as they do also do an interesting activity in it that, that gives you some sort of narrative drive, I think. I mean, it's just like... I. I don't know. Perhaps just good writing? No, okay. I'm not sure. <laughs> no, I mean, I'm curious. Is, isn't, is good writing enough? I think, I think good writing is enough. I think in a, in a lot of circumstances, if someone is masterful with a phrase, can structure those words in ways someone else has never done before, uh, it doesn't matter if that person is describing the same street in London, right? I mean, that's why we go back yeah. to 
reading fiction. And that's why places, its characters in fiction are so unique and interesting. When Paul Auster writes about New York, it is a very different experience. It is like watching Martin Scorsese shoot a scene in New York, right? I think that still holds value. So, and, and the problem we have over here is that we've lost a few, I mean, and I say here, I mean Malaysia, and why we have so little travel writing in Malaysia is that we've lost a whole bunch of, a generation or two of writers, right? Because they're all doctors and accountants and lawyers. And so we don't necessarily have the rich heritage of describing Kuala Lumpur. You know, it's so rare that the city features as a character in a novel. And so I think we still have a long way to go before Perlis yeah. or KK. Well, or... Yeah. You know, it's funny. I, I, I know that there are quite a lot of young Malaysians then in the, in the 1970s who were going off to, to study in Europe. And quite a lot of them went overland the entire trip. Of course. You know, going through India, Afghanistan, everything. The, the How whole long way. did that take? Took a long time. I think it takes about a month. <laughs> no, yeah. more. I mean, they would like, but none of these fellas have left any. As far as I know, have left any documents. There was this one Thai artist I saw. He'd he'd done this beautiful um, series of work. He did the same thing. But in, so many Malaysians have led extraordinary lives and done extraordinary things, but they've never said anything. How much of this is also because publishing is fenced off and largely confined to the Western English-speaking world, right? It is. Yeah. Yeah, but they just, they just never thought it was worth... I mean, who, who cares? I, I did this trip. Who cares? Listening to me. So our recommendations are very different as well. So I've, I've kind of centered around fiction um, and how to travel through words of fiction. And, and like I said, Sham's gone a more tra- traditional approach. But I'm going to start with Cam, because when I pitched this idea to Cam, I was like, Cam, I want you to come and talk about travel writing. Cam did Cam and went off on a tangent. So, Cam. Do you want to do all three in one shot? Or? You, you can do all three in one shot, but I think set it up for people because it's really quite fascinating. I'm well, joking around, but it is. Yeah. Well, I, when Uma mentioned this, I, I'm, I, history is my thing. So I immediately, for me, traveling is about time traveling. I, I want to go somewhere and I want to know why is this city here in this spot? Why is it here and not just over there? Why is this building here and why is that building there? Because I think that you know you can just go to a city or a place and just take it as if it was all a oneness and it was all created overnight. Uh, I, you know, there are all these sort of ancient alien idiots who, who, <laughs> who had these theories about Machu Picchu because um, because aliens came and built it in one shot. But the thing is that it's actually built over time and no one had a clue at the beginning how the end would be. They didn't say, okay, we're going to put Big Ben here and we'll put the house, uh, St. Paul's over here and Arc de Triomphe there, you know? So um, for me, history is about time travel. And so the book that I, I suggested was one of the great pieces of history, which is um, uh, the, the, the Mediterranean in the age of Philip II, by Fernand Brodel. And uh, Philip II was the uh, king of Spain in the late 1500s, but it's not about him at all. What Brodel did, he was a French historian who actually wrote this book whilst uh, his first draft, he wrote it whilst he was a prisoner of war. Um, he used to write it on bits of toilet paper and stuff because he had this amazing memory. He, he uh, instead of just sort of looking at a, an, in a single place and fixating on that, he looked at as large an area as he possibly could, in his case, the Mediterranean, and over as long a period of time as possible. Um, and so he'd be looking at geography and trade routes and economics, and, and over, you would realize over time there's repeating patterns. And through um, looking, reading books like this, 
you can you go to cities, especially Europe actually, um, and you realize, oh, that's why this is here. So I, I have a superpower, which is that I have an amazing sense of direction, my mother always says. Because when I go to a city now in Europe, I, I find it hard to get lost because I know now why the center is here and I know now why to find the suburbs. You know, I, I, mean, I it's, a, it's in a circle and you just go around and you'll always get back to the... And this book explains the concept of that why. Essentially, yes. I mean, you're, you're looking at... Um, uh, why uh, wool, if, for instance, was moving across, and so therefore why um, wool might become popular in, say, Turkey, but, and that's why you have uh, expensive buildings in Belgium being built. You know, just the interconnectedness. And I'm, I'm always looking also for how does anything I'm looking at anywhere in the world connect to Malaysia? <laughs> Is there a connection? And, and you know, by looking at the, 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 these things, you sort of, you can go to Venice now, and you can actually see, yes, there is a connection to Malaysia. My initial recommendation was actually going to be, just because this is really the only female travel writer that I remember reading when I tried, was Martha Gellhorn, who was um, Ernest Hemingway's third wife, accomplished journalist, covered every war that happened in her lifetime, traveled tremendously, um, unfortunately is almost always better known as Ernest Hemingway's third wife, um, but is an excellent writer in her own right. Um, so she, her book is called Travels with Myself and Another, and the another is Ernest Hemingway, but is never mentioned in the book. And, you know, it's a problematic book because you read it now, this was in the 40s to the 70s, and... Um, you know, you read it and parts of it feel slightly racist, parts of it feel very patronizing. Um, so I, when I was thinking about what to recommend f for this um, event, I kind of thought, well, I don't know if I want to recommend that. And then this led me to a bit of a tangent about what I was saying earlier, which is what is travel writing anyway? Like, is it, does it have to be, I went here, I ate this, or I went there and I saw these people that I didn't know before? And then this led me to thinking about two books in particular that I really love, and I never actually realized were travel writing. One is by Maya Angelou, um, and it's called, it's the fifth in her autobiographical series. Um, I always get the title mixed up, so I wrote it down. All God's Children Need Traveling Shoes. Um, and it's basically about how post her son having um, an almost, uh, a very serious car accident, the son and her go back to, go to Ghana, and spend four years there. And she spends, this is the first time that uh, they've gone back to Africa. And they spend all this time getting to know, um, you know, various communities that live there, rediscovering perhaps some of her own um, roots in West Africa. And, you know, and I realized that it does what all great travel writing should do. It paints this amazing picture of what Ghana is. It puts a story of a real person in the midst of this place. It doesn't, it's not, you know, it does not talk down. It's not exoticizing. It, you know, it reads like fiction, but it's not, right? So that's one. And in a similar vein, uh, Zora Neale Hurston wrote this, like, amazing book about voodoo. Um, it's called Tell My Horse, and it's set in Haiti and Jamaica. And essentially, she explores the art of voodoo as an initiate into the practice 
and oh my God, I swear it was the most exciting read because I, I mean, I love anything to do with the occult and not necessarily because I believe in it, but it just makes for such exciting reading. And again, it's one of those things where why isn't that considered travel writing? Why don't people, because she goes to these places and she's a stranger to the community and the culture as well. And then she slowly, as the book goes by, as a initiate into this very, very odd set of practices and beliefs, kind of internalizes a lot of it and is a totally changed person by the end. And also at that time, there wasn't much being written about places like Haiti and Jamaica from a place that, from a perspective that wasn't, again, white man no, traveling right. there. And, and the white male perspective of voodoo is just like a doll where you stick right. pins into it, right. right? And because I don't think Zora Neale Hurston or Maya Angelou thought of what they were doing as travel writing. Right. Um, I've, I've seen Live and Let Die. I was I, just going to say, <laughs> that is my only reference I, point to I voodoo. Know, I know James voodoo. Bond. It's awful. <laughs> That is a movie that is very problematic these days. So yes, those are my recommendations. Cool. Um, so uh, I, I've gone down the route of fiction, and I think my first recommendation is a wonderful little book which came out in 1970 called 84 Charing Cross Road. And it's by Helen Hanf. And it is, it is this simple collection of letters that she writes to a bookshop, an antiquarian bookshop called Marks & Co., and she's an American, it's after the war, she doesn't have a lot of money, and she's writing letters because she wants books, and she has no easy way to source books. And so she tells him, you know, you know, if you can afford, if you've got editions which are like five bucks or less, and you can send them over, I would really appreciate it. And that starts this relationship between these two individuals. It's this absolutely magnificent, beautiful story which spans two decades. And they share their lives with her. They talk about how it's after the war and there's food rationing. And they haven't had any of the things they used to be able to get before the war. And she sends a cat package one time with a giant ham as well. And of course, they've had no access to ham for the longest time. And it's this absolutely beautiful and tragic story because she could never get enough money to travel to Marks & Co. to actually visit the store and meet the people that she's been corresponding with for the longest time. Uh, but what's more, it paints a picture of America and England post-war, the struggles they faced, you know, what this little shop on Charing Cross Road is like. I mean, if you've ever traveled to England and you've gone to Charing Cross Road, you know every other store is a bookshop. It's a secondhand bookshop or something. It is a wonderful insight into both these places and multiple lives, right? And I return to that book over and over again. It's 120 pages. And I keep reading it. As you know, uh, recently I went on a media trip to London. Oh, yes. And um, with people from many nationalities, including this guy who was from China, this lovely fellow. He's a, he was a media, he's an influencer. Yeah. So he's got like 500,000 followers and stuff. Wow. And he teach, essentially teaches people how to travel because it, it's, it's new to them. And he was obsessed by that book. Yeah. By H4 Charing Cross Road. And so eventually we had to go and find the location. It's no so, longer a bookshop. It's a McDonald's. That's right. <laughs> oh, it's a McDonald's? <laughs> oh, my God. Marks & Co. is now a McDonald's. Yeah. So there's a plaque, though, and, he, and I took a picture with him, and, and he was so happy. So, you know, this China fellow has just loved it. Yeah. No, there, there was something about the book. There's something about the writing. There's something about how intimate and personal it is, and you're immediately transported into that life when you read this book. And, of course, there is some of a weird love story going on between our two protagonists in that book because they never meet it's so romantic they correspond through books cam you've got a second recommendation for us yeah, i'll put two and three together um 
So at the beginning of uh, Terry Jones, Terry Jones of Monty Python, he did a, a, a very good uh, documentary series about the Crusades. Yes. At the beginning of that, he says that Sir Stephen Runciman, who wrote the, the epic and encyclopedic book on the history of Byzantium, five volumes, when writing about the history of a thousand-year history of a, of, a, of a civilization, never once mentioned what people ate or what they wore. <laughs> and um, so... Uh, Terry Jones, he made a documentary where he wanted to show you what people wore and how they walked through the desert, what they were wearing. So um, this, this author, uh, uh, John Julius Norwich, or Lord Norwich, is one of these Englishmen who's many, there are many of them, who became obsessed by the Eastern Mediterranean world. And so he's written a, a history of uh, Byzantium, which is the Christian civilization uh, centered around present-day Istanbul, which fell in 1453. And he's also written a wonderful, the best histories on um, Venice, along with Jan Morris, who used to be James Morris, is now Jan Morris. And he's written it in such a way that you do get a sense of, he doesn't necessarily talk about what they ate and what they wore, but you get a sense of real people having lived real lives. And, and you, so when you go visit these places, you, you, you realize that, People lived here, and they had choices, and they did things, and they lived and died by their choices. And so the final book that I want to mention is a brand new book. It's just come out by Marina Amiral called The Color of Time, and she is Brazilian, and she is a, a photo colorist. So she takes all these old black and white photographs, and then she colorizes them. Oh, I love photo colorists. Oh, yeah. But in the... In the past, I've hated them because they've done a horrible job. You know, you just got these big pink faces, you know, on black and white. But she's, she's really done her research, and she, she has her own particular kind of look. And when you see the faces that she's, she's taken um, and how she's put color on them, you suddenly see actual human beings who lived actual lives. Uh, like, you know, be it Abraham Lincoln um, or... General Sherman or something, or, or all these people. And so when I travel, I, I, want to, I want to work hard and use my imagination to take away buildings and put buildings back in, and people to see why they did what they did. Um, and so that, for me, is, is what travel is about. So this book, is it a, it's a photo book? Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I haven't actually bought the book, but I have bought uh, three of her prints, which are now hanging on my wall. When it comes to traveling and thinking about how people lived, we have an incredibly skewed perspective now in 2018. Part of it, I think, has to do with the rise of travel books, travel guides, if you will. And there are whole generations that are so influenced by the Lonely Planets and the Fromers and they are so incredibly influenced by those books that they have a similar experience. Yeah, and have you ever felt like you read one of these guides about KL and you don't recognize the KL they're no, writing about? I don't. Like, who goes to these places? Who eats there? But apparently, according to those books, everyone. If you want to scope out where all the white people eat, I guess you can just follow that and be like, ah, there you no, all are. But this is not a new conversation. No. Uh, because there are o older books, like the Michelin Guides. Correct. And then there's Biedeker from the 19th century, which all British people used to refer to when they went on the Grand Tour. 
So they all had the same experience. It's a sanitized experience because it's one that actually takes you away from the locals. It takes you, like you said, who goes there. So it takes you away from... I feel from like it's the place that you take your white friend to because they can't eat the spicy food in the place that you normally go to. Correct. Yeah. And they're like, who eats curry at nine in the morning? I'm like, we do. <laughs> I know uh, my wife's cousin used to... She, uh, he's a Chinese, motion Chinese. And he would take motions on, on tours to um, Europe. And they would go to all the best spots. You know, they'd be like London, Paris... Rome and everything, but every single night they had to eat in a Chinese restaurant. Hmm. <laughs> and, 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 you know, some places I would imagine when you get to like, uh, I don't know, Brno in Slovenia or whatever, no, no. I would imagine it's getting pretty bad by no. then. Cam, <laughs> Cam, let me tell you, if there's one thing you can count on, there is a Chinese person everywhere with a restaurant. Oh, yeah. I was once in the deepest, darkest recesses of Belfast. And I say deepest, darkest recesses because people at a pub there wanted to take photos of me because they had never seen a brown person. They were introducing me to their daughters. It was so weird. But there was a Chinese restaurant. And the first thing I did was I asked this lady, I'm like, you could go, you've, you've left, you've run away from your country. You could go anywhere in the world. Why did you end up in Belfast? And she was like, it was our first stop. And so we just decided we're going to stay here and open a restaurant. Good, good for them. Good for them. But my point being though, is that, that <laughs> the, the, the travel guide is, it's as much you know, for, for, the, for the, the foreign tourists is to make them comfortable. Yeah. Um, offer them possibilities of the authentic, but at the same time with the safety of their own stomach. And isn't yes. this what is kind of happening now still with Instagram and influencers where everyone takes the same picture of the same rainbow bagel in the same cafe um, and at different angles. At different angles, yes, with different artfully placed correct, you know, correct. hands or books or drink. But at the end of the day they end up becoming it's it sort of becomes a thing you have to do. Um, but that means that no one's really having this elusive, authentic experience. If you go to, if you go to Florence right now, um, it's impossible to walk around the Duomo without getting clobbered by a selfie stick. They're just everywhere. Disney World, man. Yeah. Like, you feel like you're going to get your eye poked out in every ride. You know what? This feels like the perfect opportunity to plug Airbnb experiences on Airbnb.com. No. <laughs> Nary a selfie stick inside. <laughs> that, that was very smooth, actually. Thank you. Um, I tried. That's why they paid yeah. me the big bucks. But you know, you're saying with Instagram and whatnot, the thing is that absolute certainty that your experience will not be as good as their experience. And you will walk away from Florence going, I had a time. Yeah. <laughs> and I hate myself. And I hate them. And I hate everyone. But I got the perfect photo. Well, if, if you got lucky. If yeah. you've got the perfect photo. It's only the photo that's real. So uh, my other two recommendations uh, with regards to fiction, I have, I have long been obsessed with the road trip. And I, and I don't know where that comes from. And I think it's, being, I think it's growing up watching so much American film. Because the road trip is a very American construct. And they've got such vast spaces, so it works. And there are so many stories where individuals, fathers and sons, mothers and daughters, best friends, go on long road trips to kind of discover each other um, and the world around them. And throughout literary history, there are plenty of great examples. Steinbeck wrote Travels with Charlie in Search of America. There's a wonderful book by Robert M. Persick called Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, 
which is a father and son motorcycle trip through America, but which is really a deep meditation, a deep philosophical meditation on life and values. More recently, Neil Gaiman wrote American Gods. Um, it's a TV series now, uh, but it was a book first, and it was a wonderful road trip story. I mean, sure, the, 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 the entire story was about old, the old gods of America versus the new gods of America. That's the plot line, right? And there's a character called Shadow, and there's a strange godlike character called Wednesday, and they set off on a, on a road trip in the face of this upcoming war between the gods. And when I say old gods, I mean... The idea is that America is like a god, actual gods, like actual yeah. gods, like America is so a Euro- god, European gods. European god. So not just yeah. European, not just actually. European. So Any America, immigrant community, right? Yeah, America is a godless place, and 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 these immigrants brought their gods with them: the Indians, the Pakistanis, the Europeans, the Greeks, all of them, right? But they're facing off with the new gods, the gods of television, the gods of technology, these new gods that are threatening. So that in itself is an incredibly clever concept. But then to set it amongst this road trip through the side towns and streets of America, uh, because Wednesday, this character is obsessed with small town attractions in America. And only in America do you have the world's biggest ball of yarn. or Tallest pencil, I think. Tallest pencil. You know, we come close with our flagpoles and all of this stuff. But and the Malaysian Guinness Book of Records, it often doesn't get spoken about as a road trip book. Yeah, that's that's the thing. Because obviously when you tell someone it's about the fights between, you know, Greek gods or, or Norse gods. Nobody thinks, oh, and it's also a road trip. Yeah. But it is. It's it's very much in the vein of that something a person going through this huge transformation, both personal and in a larger sense. Yep. In a very literal sense in this case, while on the road. And that's exactly what books like Kerouac's and all did, which is that essential transformation while on a journey. And then my, and my final recommendation of a book is Haruki Murakami's South of the Border, West of the Sun, which is yet again a rather slim volume, probably one of his slimmest volumes. And it's a love story, uh, like all Haruki Murakami stories, just too star-crossed, but, you know, just never to be lovers. Uh, but what's great about it, of course, is its setting, right? And I think after reading that book, you get lost in Tokyo, in this very urbane and urban Tokyo, and you just, you want to go there, you want to hang out in nightclubs and jazz clubs, and, and it creates this sense of place that is so strong that it makes you want to go there. And I think that, for me, is the greatest achievement of any sort of writing, fiction or not, if it makes me want to go there, right? Or makes you never want to go there? Yeah, I was just going to say, or makes you, I mean, I don't want to go to Mordor. Ever. It sounds like an awful place. Unless you had a ring and then you might want to. That's all right. (laughs) Or a good-looking elf. Yeah. Anyway. Could I ask one question? Sure. Um, There there are places that flash into one's mind. Um, And what's the place that just flashes into your mind the most? That you've been, that I've been to or just read about whatever, just like... New York. Yeah, for me. And I think it's the overwhelming amount of literature and movies and TV shows that you watch. And then I have to say, though, that New York is probably the one place, um, despite that overwhelming amount of exposure that you get remotely, when I first went, I wasn't disappointed. Whatever expectations I'd had set, it only surpassed it. What's that for you, Cam? I mean, you lived many years in England. Um, Is it... Anywhere in Europe, or is it somewhere else? Well, there are, there are two. I mean, um, Venice, when I went to Venice, it was 
incredible because it really is like Venice. <laughs> you know, you, no, but you, you, you see it in the postcards and everything, and you think, but it can't really be like that. And you get there, and it is. And, and um, it's just this city that's just perfect, and it's there, and you, it, the whole history and everything is there in one shot. But actually, a place that really flashes into my mind a lot is Los Angeles, where I, I was going to move to live. I was going to live there. And it's the one place where it's where paradise and human swamp live next to each other simultaneously and within the same being at the same moment. Um, it's, it's a remarkable place. It's heaven and hell. Hmm. For me, I think there were, there were two places as well, actually. Madras or Chennai being one of it because both of my parents studied there. And so we would always go back, but it's never a place I want to go to. So in that sense, it's, it's, yet again, it's heaven and hell in the same place. There's so much about Madras and Chennai and South India that's absolutely beautiful, but then there is just as much that is absolutely awful. And yeah, you know, it's funny. I had a guy, I was at a conference in Singapore and there was a guy from Chennai who was on our bus and we were all conference participants and you know how Singaporeans do conferences, right? They kind of show you around. I want to show you the best of the city and all of that stuff. And, and this guy just couldn't stop going on about Singapore. He was so impressed at everything. It was his first time in Singapore. And the Singaporeans around him were like, what are you talking about, man? We have so much problems. Don't let all of this, don't let this veneer, like this shininess fool you. And he turned around to them at the end of the day and he just goes, listen, man, when you've grown up in filth, this is remarkable, right? And we were just like, yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, actually, I had the same thing. I had uh, a fellow from New Delhi here. Yeah. And we were driving through KL, and it was some really bad part in Churras or something. And a really he goes, bad part in Churras. Churras, yeah. No, but, you know, one place where... Hey, no, I grew Chir- up in Churras. Oh, right. <laughs> bless you, bless you. You have fond memories. It's ugly as hell. Um, and we're driving through that, and he goes, it's so beautiful. <laughs> really? What? <laughs> and and he says no. I mean, like compared to New Delhi, I mean, like you, your roads—they work. They go from here to there, and 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 it functions. And there's a train, and it, it it's it's not filled with garbage. And I'm going, yeah, I suppose actually, when you think about it, when when you say it like that, it's a low bar to clear. When no, was still, this though? I mean, recently? Yeah, recently. Oh. Yeah. Cheers. I wasn't necessarily Chiras. I can't, I can't remember. I don't know it. whether it's the New Delhi folks that should be more insulted or the Chiras folks. <laughs> yeah, I kind yeah. of feel it should be an equal thing. All right. It was, I don't know where it was. It was somewhere equally horrible. How's that? Yeah. <laughs> and the second place that pops into my mind is uh, Florence, actually, in Tuscany. Just because it's the... I had never... The, I fell in love with the place the first time I stepped foot in it. I don't know what it was about it. I just... I, I was supposed to be... The first time I went, I was supposed to be on a European tour with my best friend, and we had all these things planned. He and I, we were going to Paris, Rome, Florence, like just Barcelona, whatever, right? We had Venice, everything planned. Florence was our third stop. We did Paris, we did Rome, we did Florence, and we didn't leave Florence for two weeks. We just were just like, nah, who needs to go to those other places? Who cares about Spain? This place is magnificent. And for some reason, it just stuck. Yeah, there, there was actually a very good low-budget movie um, about one of those tours, a rapid tours. I think it was called um, It's Tuesday, So It Must Be Belgium. Um, <laughs> and it's like, 
every day it's a new country and they're going crazy. They don't know where they are. By oh, the I, I know. Those tours are awful. They give you like, you know, you, you, they drop you outside the Louvre and they're like, you have two hours. Oh, yeah. Go so find the Mona I'm Lisa. I'm taking like two days in the Louvre and, and like this tour group is just running from room they're to room. And they're like, Mona Lisa on the left, Rembrandt on the right. Yeah, exactly. Selfie, selfie, selfie. And then you're gone. Exactly. It's, it's all you need, actually. <laughs> All right, so we've been talking for well over an hour now. We want to hear from you guys as well. Uh, I'm going to kick us off with our winner, Sheila. Yes, you are going to tell us. Yes, you can stand. Let's stand. Yay, yes. Okay, so this is Sheila. She won. She's going to be able, she's going to be spending a night in a bookstore, something all of us wanted to do, but we couldn't take part. But yeah. Sheila, uh, first of all, tell us the winning entry, what you did to win. Yeah, tell us about your favorite book that you want to bring along with uh, travel and why in 50 words. That was so mean. <laughs> so uh, myself and my daughter, uh, we brainstorm. And yeah, our favorite book, uh, both of our favorite book is uh, The Little Prince. And how many of you have read? Me. It's my favorite too. Okay, then I don't need to. <laughs> okay. So uh, The Prince Travel, right? From planets to planets. So we just, uh, I can't remember our exact words, but we said uh, we like to travel like the the prince because he remained uh, open-minded and open heart. So that's what you need to do when you travel. You will bound to find idiosyncrasies or peculiarities, anything that, that, that doesn't seem right in your eye, but doesn't necessarily mean the bad thing. So you just have to have an open mind and open heart. Uh, that's the whole point of traveling, right? To find something different. So if uh, that's why I was telling the press this afternoon. I said, yeah, I do carry the little prince when we travel. Not literally, but it's in my heart. That spirit of his spirit and his openness. Yeah, without being gullible, but respectful maybe, yeah? Uh, yeah, I just yeah, I just love Little Prince so much, and well, we just share that. And apparently, the judges like it too, so that's Yay. why we are here. Exactly, <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. Do you read a lot of travel literature, or no. no, just the Little Prince? Oh wait, no, you also like The Alchemist. The Alchemist yeah, is a bit I of a travel not, book. Yeah, but what, well, listening to you guys up there, I was like, yeah, no, I never read any traveling narrative. I think, but then I was like. Hey, wait, my top three books that Uh-oh, I make, yeah. yeah, make my all my children a must read for them is The Alchemist, which is about traveling, The Kite Runner, which takes you to a place, which, uh, what you said, a, a place that you don't want to go. I don't want to go to Kabul, <laughs> Afghanistan. Uh-huh. And the third one is The Little Prince. Prince. So it is about traveling, it is about searching for something. And yeah, so. Well, Sheila, well, thank you very you much. Go. Thank you and so much. Congratulations once again. Thank you. I, th- I think we're... I would bet that mm. most people are fans of some kind of travel writing if you just redefine what it is. Yeah, I think yeah. that's what we've done here today. It's kind of cheeky and sneaky, but yes, anything you read can be classified. Throw us a name of a book. And we can tell you why it's travel writing. You know, I actually considered suggesting The Hitchhiker's Guide by Douglas Adams because for me, that's the spirit of travel, right? Oh, like yeah. the mad... To me, it, when I read it, it sounded like going on like a mad drunken 
like road trip with my best friends who after I don't always get along with. Destroyed. Yes. Well, yeah, maybe after a breakup, maybe, you know, but to me, that's travel. It may not be to real places, but it's a kind of travel. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, folks, do you have thoughts? Do you have critiques? Do you have a favorite travel book that you go back to? Like Sheila does with the little prince. Don't be shy. Hi, uh, my name is Alex. <clears throat> it's not so much of a favorite book that I kind of like. It's just when I was sitting here and I was living, um, thinking about Around the World in a half books. At the same time, I also thought about this current generation. It's Around the World in eight and a half websites. <laughs> you know? So I just kind of want to know, like, how do you guys balance out the need to read versus what the trend is right now? I mean, I love to read, right? But I don't have the time to. And I love going on a journey on a book and then you close your eyes and then you think about, you imagine the place that you're going to go and then you have TripAdvisor. Yeah, I, I think you've uh, encapsulated the, the dilemma of our times there. Um, well, in terms of simply reading, I mean, uh, I think you, you can, if you abandon the kind of romantic image of how you should be reading... It's like you'll take time off and you'll sit there and there'll be the wonderful shaft of light and you'll kind of the coffee will be yeah da, da, da. Uh, <laughs> don't expect that because it, you'll be sitting on the, phone on the toilet for some uh, yeah and you'll so. be sc- scrolling and 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 like all that kind of thing um, but you know at least when you go to bed you just read 500 words and before you know it, you finish the book but I, I do think that when you if you are planning a trip if you want to go you will feel that excitement. And you will want to know. It'll be that one time that really does engage you. And then, gosh, your choices are, you know. So one of, one of the things that I find quite fun to do, and it was, it's not my own idea. I read it online. Um, is So uh, I don't like flights. I find them uncomfortable. So what the idea is, the place that you're going to, find a book that's either about that place or by an author who's from that place, spend your flight there reading that book, right? And um, I like that a lot because I I used to do about that place. Now I find I like more doing an author from that place, which may not necessarily be travel, but you get the idea. Because instead of watching, you know, six movies because I can't sleep on the flight, you can conceivably finish a book in one flight. You can. Yeah. Uh, What I do is something similar, but... Uh, I read crime fiction set in that place. Why would you want to go there then? Because, because, um, because it takes you to a part of the place you will never go to. So I know when I'm going there, if it's a new place, I'm going to do the same touristy things that everyone else does, uh, you know, and you've got to go see the Eiffel Tower or whatever. But when you read murder fiction, it takes you into the deep, seedy underbelly of Paris, for example, a place you would never go to, or Shanghai, or Tokyo, or wherever. And I think that gives you a different perspective as opposed to... Okay, so if you are a jittery person, it might be terrifying to then take to the streets. But if you're not, I find it quite fun. Your Instagram feed must be fun. <laughs> My Instagram feed is a lot of fun. Actually, one thing I like to do when I, when I do travel is if I'm going to somewhere cold, I want to read a book about somewhere hot. And when I'm going somewhere hot, I want to read about something cold. Because um, I always want to feel a sense of nostalgia and yearning for the other place. Because um, the grass is always greener. Yeah, because instead of uh, imagining that I can actually find perfection, 
I, I give in to the fact that it'll always be elusive. Uh, folks, thank you very much for joining us. Keep those claps coming. We want to record them. And there you have it, our very special edition of Bookmark Live that was held in conjunction with Airbnb's Once Upon a Sleepover contest. Now, we want you to tell us about your favorite pieces of travel writing. You can tweet me. I'm on at Umar Pagan. I'm also on at BFM Radio. This episode of Bookmark was brought to you by Airbnb. You've been listening to BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.